Hello, you must hear this podcast. We are Maxi, Milan and Tim, and we're here to provide entertainment about entertainment for entertainment purposes. In this episode, Spider-Man, Prometheus, the debut of Monkey Brain Comics, and a few more things. And uh, this is the first episode of Year 2. Yeah, it certainly is. And Man, you guys have got to get the hang of the whole confirming <laughs> my... <laughs> and we're all a year older, I guess. Does that We are work? all... Uh, I think it's actually officially been a year since the first episode you were on as well, Tim, even though I wasn't on that episode. It means it's been well, a year since been... Green Lantern has been destroying our lives. Oh, and we, man. we celebrate Green Lantern's debut on a yearly basis. You, by you, want, you, you want some irony? Sky, uh, Sky Movies is also celebrating Green Lantern by premiering it tomorrow on Sky Movies. <sighs> oh, the world is perfect. <laughs> Man, I, have I told you guys about the fact I have a skybox from the 80s? No. No? Like, the, the graphics it uses to scroll through the channels and that is so rough that all I can think is that I have travelled back to before I was sperm and, like, I died. <laughs> That's like when I played Tetris on a Game Boy. Man, don't even be saying that. I was playing Tetris on the Game Boy when I was like five. As far as I'm concerned, that was like current. Oh, no, no, yeah, same. I was I was like five, six, seven, and I was playing it on a Game Boy, and I thought that that was current. Not to feel out of place, I played. Te- I found out that my H- uh, my LG television, like a small TV screen, has its own version of Tetris that you can play on the television. Wow. That makes you like almost as good as airplane video games. <laughs> Or a U-Torrent, which um, has a hidden Tetris game inside it. I've had U-Torrent for years, and I have never known this. Yes, Admittedly, exactly. I've never upgraded it, so it could just not be on mine. I can't remember quite how you access it, but um, I'm sure if you give it a Google. Or you could just I, play I will... Tetris online on any number of free sites. I mean, it's not that amazing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, most importantly, we are now on iTunes again with a new feed, but one that actually has the right name and uh, a logo. <laughs> so no longer will we see me as Bearded Hercules representing us with a terrible mixed up link name. <laughs> we are You Must Hear This Podcast on iTunes. And you can find us by searching for our names, name of the podcast, or I guess for films. And of course, if you're good enough to write us a review, then maybe you're Timothy Swan because you're the only person who listens. And, and uh, he is probably right. He's given us uh, feedback on our episode zero. He has pointed out that uh, the majority of the Star Wars Expanded Universe is better than the original trilogy. And I mostly disagreed, but he is also right. Um, based purely on the fact that some of it is better, I'll, I'll go along with that. Yeah, um... but like... It's not it's not that high a bar, really, so some I'm sure that's true. Some of it is the worst stuff ever written, and some <laughs> of the thoughts unleashed, so... Yeah, I don't, mix- I don't think I have enough time in the world to go through every single thing outside of the, the trilogy. Knights of the Old Republic I, is pretty damn good. I mean, does that count? Yeah. I would want to trust... Um, uh, someone will tell me the names of this on a later date, and I'll bring it up in a later episode or something. But there was a great comic series, I think it was like uh, Legends of the Jedi Knights or something, that was about two ancient Jedis, Ulit killed Droma and some other dick, as they like got corrupted and stuff. And like you can find it in a Dark Horse omnibus, and it is good comics. Like I should push that towards you one day, Milan. 
Okay, and um, as usual, our format hasn't changed grossly. I mean, we're mostly sticking with the whole thing of it just being what we've done as opposed to having a spotlight, but there is something spotlight-esque in this episode in that you two have seen Spider-Man. Indeed. We have. Ah, you're getting better at this. Whip, whip. <laughs> whip, whip, quip. <clears throat> Two things he does. Yeah. Also, you know, despair at the death of other people, but I don't know if that happens in the movie. Is there, like, a moment where he sees the ghosts of people who haven't died yet in the movie? Like, uh... I almost said Gene Grey. I wish. I can't remember the cop's name. <laughs> Gene Grey. Gwen Stacy, do you mean? No, yeah. uh, the cop shot by the douche. I really John, wish uh, there were. I, th- I think I think we should wait till the spotlight to uh, the sort of spotlight. Yes. Uh, oh, well done, Tim. You used the power of Google to answer my question already on what <laughs> Um You look so smart. You look Keldroma right without even trying. Yeah, I, I'm. Was... <laughs> I wish I could say that that was for a good reason, but it's because I played Star Wars: The Clone Wars, like the old game before they made a TV series. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah, and part of that was had Ulrich Heldroma, so I, I was aware of the character from that. Uh, hey, that's yeah, not so that it, bad. Uh, that's, that, it was okay. It had a good, good reason. It's a fun game. Good multiplayer, good multiplayer. Anyway, yes, the comic is Tales of the Jedi. It's in a cool omnibus, and now let's talk about what we've done. <clears throat> you know, if you're gonna steal cars, don't dress like a car thief. You a cop? You seriously think I'm a cop? In a skin tie, red and blue suit. What you been up to, Milan? What I've been up to, well, a lot of things, basically, just, I've literally just been stuck inside of my house doing absolutely nothing, it's not a good life, to say the least, I'm currently trying to actually figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Yay. That was a bit too dark. Let's go into something even darker. <laughs> Courageous. Okay. I, I love your <laughs> I love the idea of something dark and an existential doubt is media. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, just to explain what uh, Courageous is all about, uh, it's simply uh, a story about a group of cops who work in a small um, in a town called um, Albany um, in Georgia, and. I don't really think I could really dignify this with a plot summary. It's Christian propaganda. It's truly uh, Christian uh, propaganda. You showed me the trailer for this, and I'm still just unable to fathom why it's so bad. <laughs> just... You actually asked me, why did I watch it? Yeah. Like, well, how did you make yourself do this? Well, it's just generally speaking... um. I, um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a Christian, and now you know, and now you can try and terrorise me. Um, I don't really think that's going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we we have a fairly balanced uh, religious viewpoint in this podcast. I mean, we have an atheist, a deist, and a Christian. I mean, we're not full of hate; we're full of no, love. What, no, but what I'm trying to say is that any potential listeners, um, no one listens. Yeah, but anyway, courageous. Well, to 
uh, take from the IMDb if you really want to know. When a tragedy strikes close to home, four police officers struggle with their faith in their roles as husbands and fathers. Together, they make a decision that will change all their lives. Basically, this whole entire film is all about the idea that because of fatherlessness problems and uh, broken family homes, it's causing problems within the family unit, and they have to try and dedicate themselves to just uh, rectifying the situation using uh, godly principles. Basically, this is just a vehicle to sell books. Okay, these got um, the Kendrick brothers designed books, right? Write these books, make a film to go with them. The film is not the end product. They make the films to try and like, like, present their point of view, and then they sell the book on the side and get New York best time uh, bestseller list and stuff like that. And they they sell pretty well. I mean, their previous film you might have heard of called Fireproof, which stars the uh, Kurt Cameron. You might have heard that one. <laughs> As every good movie does. And that was going through like a dissolution of um, of um, of a marriage and how to restore the marriage, especially with the fact that it contained a very weird sequence, a very strange sequence where Kirk Cameron struggles to destroy his computer because he's addicted to pornography, and it's not done in a way that you could actually consider any, um, outside of anything but comedy. Now with Courageous, it takes things further. Okay, now I'm not going to try and. Uh, Basically, what these films' problems are is essentially that they rely a lot on volunteers, volunteer actors, and stuff like that. The problem is the directors directors have do not have enough experience, or even do not have a clue as to understanding how to write dialogue, how to direct, or how to um, or even how to um, present actors. And so you're getting these people awkwardly going through lines, and it's mind-numbingly insane on how this works and and the film is manipulative to the core i mean the whole um the whole the when i um i'm gonna spoil this because the audience that are probably listening to this are not gonna go and see this film but the big event is one of the officer's daughters is killed by a drunk driver and it spends about say 30 minutes acting sad about this 30 minutes, literally people crying, a funeral scene, people talking about it, people crying again, people talking about it some more, crying again. And and it just, it becomes to the point that it's like at one point where, he, um, where the main character played by the director himself, Alex Kendrick, um, promised the daughter that he would dance with her at the beginning of the film. He doesn't <laughs> dance with her. She dies. And then and then it comes to a point where they play some conte- Christian contemporary music, Obviously. right? And then, on, he pretend- and then he pretends to Hold dance on. with her in the middle of a park. Ah, I was hoping your next words would be he'd dance with the corpse. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is really awkward. It's literally a guy dancing for about for about two to three minutes, pretending to be oh, dancing with an invisible person. That should be like ten to twenty seconds at the most. Yeah, that's that's the cutoff for dancing with dead people. But even like, then, it should sort of fade to black. Nice little musical bit that ends it. But even then, the lot of the acting is really, really very bad. But it's when I say this is about cops, there's also the added in a random character called Javier Martinez, the only pretty much the only um, representative of the Latin um, Latin American community in this whole entire film, right? And he's an immigrant <laughs> struggling to provide for his family. And so one of the guys sets him up for a job. It sets him up for a job. He does the job, but then, um, but then 
the owner of the factory want, uh, offers him a promotion on the condition he reports a f- uh, like a false inventory account and so like acting as a corrupt but then Martinez refuses but then it's a test for integrity and then he's and then he's pretty much got financially resolved and it's does anyone do that no it, it, it's, it's really small matters but came out of nowhere also one of the okay um one of the characters uh, the beginning of the film is so hilarious that it's just kind of like it's do um if you feel emotion for the sequence you're probably going to enjoy this film but if you were laughing like I did you're not you're pretty much not going to enjoy it okay so imagine this at the beginning of the film you have a service station the guy's going to go and fill it the, uh, got, um n- uh, this guy called Nathan Hayes played by um Ken Bevel yeah he's only starred in these films by the way right he's um he's upright um, African American um, dressing in like um, shirts and like trousers and stuff like that, right? He's tr- um, he's uh, filling up, but then he sees his. <laughs> Sorry, why is it specific that he's dressing in, in shirts no, I'll and get, trousers? I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Okay, right? okay. Here's a specific reason. Okay, and so he sees. Oh, his windscreen's dirty. So he goes up to um one um, like a screen wiper thing and finds it's dry. And so he goes to the next one. Then along comes like a very expensive car, which makes no sense for the context of the scene. Out comes a gangster type with a uh, with a, like a rag on top of his head and stuff like that. I mean, later on, he um Nathan even says that it's a do rag. And so ah this- oh, shit. <laughs> so it's and so it's like this stereotype just walks out and takes the car right but then he spots him and then this chase scene where he jumps onto the side and tries to grab the driver and it goes like in the most awkward chase scene possible then he crashes the car he um the but a guy driving escapes he's lying on the ground um woman st- um, w- these two women stop like they're saying oh you're okay and it's like I gotta get to the car. It's like your car's safe. No, it's what's inside the car. And then he opens the back door, and it's a crying baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> but worst comes. Um, but this character also makes one of the funniest sequences I've ever seen, and it's one of the most inappropriate things I've ever seen. All right, basically, um, he has problems with his like with his relationship with his daughter, and it's all about the fact that he's not he's being too strict of as a father and stuff like that. And so he mends his relationship. He goes to a restaurant with his daughter and offers her a, puri- a purity ring to wear until she's married. What's that got to do with anything? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> It's literally like, oh, I'm going to be a better father now, so I'm going to offer you a purity ring. And guess what? She starts crying, and she's, like, really happy about it, as if, like... I'm really happy like, I've got this jewellery. I've got this happy I'm wearing this purity ring. And it's kind of like, what are you doing? I guess, let's be fair, she's crying with happiness because it's not actually, like, a heavy iron chastity belt. You know, they've gone the safe route here. There's no spikes. They're not going to rust up her junk. No. And that's what the message is here. The message is that in a movie, if you want to have a plot off to the side, it should be about a girl not having rusty junk. Simple. <laughs> but yeah, um, basically, it's just uh, it's this film is just simply this. If you can, um, if you are seriously, um, if you are a serious Christian who's like a Republican 
a Republican Midwest type of thing. Well, not not all My, not all serious Christians are Republican. No, what I'm trying to say is is that this is the type of audience it's aimed for. Literally, right, if you're a hardcore American Christian, it's it's not aimed at liberal Christians. No, it's not aimed at liberal. It's not aimed at Christians who understand what makes a good film. <laughs> it's it's aimed at it's Christians. Basically, it's basically it's the type of film where it's kind of like you watch this film and it's like, oh bless, they tried, they tried to make a film, oh bless. It's aimed at people who don't watch movies. What you're saying is it's for the tea party. Yeah, it's it's that type of film, and it's not open to anything. It's basically the whole entire film doesn't even understand what actually makes humans work. It's kind of like, the fact is, is that... Well, how could a film understand that? It's, it's uh, only celluloid. Oh. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that, okay, all right, this is all about fathers and, like, family units and stuff like that. Okay, right, you can have a single mother and stuff like that and be a real good Christian and, ha- uh, and actually have a solid household, um, household without a husband. You can have single parents. You can have... So many different, so many different types of relationships and stuff like that, and it doesn't even justify the narrative, right? You can even be and, a Latino and have a good family. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that, and that's the problem. It's like you got in the story, you've got like the token black guy, you've got the token um, Latino, you've got the token um, young adult in the story. Like they just needed someone youthful to star in the film. So, oh, let's cast him. Let's put him in it. Just a person who. Looked the part, right? Didn't have act. Um, the people he, they don't look for anyone with acting ability. They're just putting people in the film. And now, here comes the kicker. Basically, I want I want to like this film, but I just uh, the problem is is that it's kind of like encouraging a child to steal chocolate when reality reality is you, you should tell them to stop and actually eat some um, eat some carrots or something like that. It's kind of like you want to treat them, but you can't treat them too much. It's a weird metaphor, but <laughs> it is a weird yeah. metaphor. But, um... Basically, like if you if you were trying to convince people that Christianity is the right way to go, do not show them courageous, okay? Because you'll just end up like um, you'll just end up like a YouTube video showing that evolution um, cannot be cannot explain the banana. I mean, um, general point: if you're trying to convert someone to a different religion, um, whatever that religious belief is, um, whether you're trying to convert someone away from uh, belief to non-belief, whether you're trying to convert someone from non-belief to belief or from one belief to another. Um, no one has any right to impose them on other, other people. If you um, do wish to um, uh, create some sort of social change with a movie, um, you're, all your work is ahead of you just because movies don't tend to have that much effect on people, I don't think. And it's um, and uh, as people have said, songs and books are far more effective mediums yeah. for, uh, than film. But it's um, I have to extend your point, uh, point Tim. Um, basically, if you if you want to talk about it, you can. Um, like if you're going to preach and stuff like that, if people are willing, uh, then talk about it and stuff like that. You're uh, you're fully allowed to. People have this, these types of discussions all the time. Mm. But with this film, uh, with this um, with this film, courageous, and even um, uh, even to the extent of like say Fireproof and Facing the Giants and all the um, and these cri- uh, Christian type of films that are people are trying to promote, is that. You can't make characters just um, figments of of ideology. You need to have real characters, real emotions. Mm. I mean, the fact is, is that there's so many, there's so many. This is why secular films are better than these Christian films. Is because they have characters and stories and arcs involving char- transformation and stuff like that. Not 
not trying to browbeat people into ideas, um, ideas and emotions that um, that feel corrupt. Because essentially speaking, if you're trying to convince people to Christianity, you don't want to tell them that it's you don't want to make them make them feel like they're being judgmental or corrupt hmm. by it. Wow, this got dark very seriously. Max, talk about something light. Man, that is the longest we have ever talked about a Christian film on the podcast. <laughs> I think this is the only time we talked about a Christian film. <laughs> oh yes, but regardless. Anyway, so uh, one of the main things I've been doing is uh, looking for a job to very little effect. And while looking for a job, I've also gone and stopped frequently at my local library, where I have been reading the uh, small selection of comic books that are available there. Because um, there really aren't comic books anywhere else in Nelson. So, you know, I have to feed the habit. And... uh, Whilst there's a lot of manga and stuff I could talk about, that's a bit limited, and also I would ramble on for ages about the craft and stuff. What I'd much rather talk about is uh, Krogan's Vengeance by Chris Schweizer. It's the uh, first of the Krogan Adventures series, which is where he's basically he's made this big family tree about all these people in the Krogan family line, and uh, what we have is in the modern day a father telling his kids the tales of their ancestors, which is like... As a, like each one is a one off volume and that is a great way of telling a like all ages story is by actually having it be a story in a story a framing device if you will a frame, yeah exactly and I mean it's a framing device he wasn't even originally going to use but uh, I think he said on Warbucket Ajax some weeks back that it was um, implemented as a way of actually making sure there were younger characters in it for something for the kids to relate to which uh, works quite well and you, they don't overbear on the story you get so um Krogan's Vengeance is just this amazing cartoony story of a uh, cat for Krogan, who was an honest sailor on a uh, on a ship that was uh, being captained by basically a religious crazy, you know, like one of the overbearing pious Christians who would uh, beat people and remove their rations and stuff because they weren't being pure enough on a voyage. You mean a Puritan? Thank you. Yeah. Man, I've been finding myself for days trying to remember that word. What is wrong with me? And uh, pirates, well, they mutiny, and then pirates turn up, which is like a really convenient order of events. And uh, after some small amount of drama, uh, they end up surrendering their ship and becoming crew members uh, to the pirates. And uh, Krogan puts himself in good stead with the pirate captain by having a plan that meant they ended up with a whole bunch of treasure, like, really early on. But, um, then what ends up happening is, uh, the, not the, he's like the second mate of the ship, I suppose, because the other guy gets put onto a different boat and stuff. Um, he ends up basically having to, uh, try and stop the ship being taken over by a big, muscly idiot guy who uh, is intent, the best way to be a pirate is to, uh, you know, attack Spanish towns and stuff, which basically means it will be impossible for them to sail, because uh, a lot of pirates stay in good stead with certain places by uh, promising to come and spend their loot there. And uh, most frequently, apparently, this would be on sort of Sp- Spain and Spanish islands nearby. And they and, needed uh, to refuel and stuff, right? Yeah, and so the captain gets killed by this big brew, and uh, Krogan gets thrown off the boat uh, on the opposite side of the island that's about to be attacked. 
So he has to gain the trust of this cowardly Spanish town as quick as he can and uh, fight back and save the day. And it's like, it all seems like a, ve- a fairly simple pirate plot. And it looks like it has a simple art style, but it's kind of, there's this intricacy to how it does things and having just a really easy to understand and get into all ages adventure that kind of really pulled me in. I mean, it helps that a lot of the physical action is well represented by having a Catfoot Krogan be like a sort of life and acrobatic guy. I mean, that's how he gets his name is because he flips himself down from the top sails and stuff with ease. And uh, it just means the whole thing is very visually arresting. And I think if I was a younger child, which I am not, but if I were, then I would make different life choices. But also, um, I think I would dig the hell out of this. But as an adult as well, it's just it has this nice youthful feeling to it that makes you feel young again. And I like that. Uh, the second and third books weren't in the library, but hopefully they will be soon. Uh, which are Krogan's March, which is about a French legionnaire trying to decide what to do with his life. And um, Krogan's Loyalty, which is about two brothers on opposite sides of the uh, War of Independence. I don't know what the Americans call it. You know, the thing where they beat us up and we left. The American War of Independence, that's right. Yeah, I was right. That's good. That's good. Sometimes I know things. So uh, it kind of... It ends up with more of a warlike aesthetic for those two later books, but this first one gives a nice bit of swashbuckling action, which uh, is totally my bag. Thumbs up. It, it, it's you said really... thumbs up then, right? Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, for a second, I thought you said bottom, bottoms up. <laughs> well, I am drinking Mountain Dew. You get Mountain Dew in, Australia, in New Zealand? Uh, yes. Uh, for about two dollars, I've got a big old bottle, one point five liters. It's quite good. That's it's quite like good. A pound. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking at the art style now. Uh, what this comic reminds me of is I read one of the uh, pirate captain books called uh, um, like Pirates of Adventure with Napoleon. It just, ah, reminds, yes. it just reminded me of that type of series. I mean, I'm, I haven't seen the animated film, but it, it sounds remarkably similar. So I will check it out. Yeah, it doesn't have an entirely dissimilar feel. So, yeah, if you like that, I'd encourage you to give this a poke. So, Tim, tell us something about your face. Um, it's got a healthy, manly beard on it. <sighs> you your fucking beard. I hate you and your beard. <laughs> um, yeah, well, one of the things I've seen this week is, um, twice actually, I've seen the movie Prometheus, um, which is the Ridley Scott movie which um he said wasn't a prequel to alien but simply was um in the same universe as alien with some of the same strands of dna i think that's a, a paraphrase of him or one of the writers um this uh, is i think a, that's what damon lindelof said. yeah right the, the the guy who rewrote it um the lost person yeah yeah this is a prequel to alien um starring numi rapace michael fassbender guy pierce charlie's theron Idris Elba and various worthy fellows and it's about a group of archaeologists and geologists and scientists um, travelling to a distant uh, corner of the galaxy to explore a planet which has been uh, signposted by various cave paintings on Earth to try and see what's there and um, what's there is horrible, horrible, horrible things um, I don't believe either of you have seen this movie. 
No, but I know a lot of what happens now uh, purely because I I was avoiding spoilers, but then uh, David Brothers did a write-up about it on a fourth letter, and I couldn't help but read it because he got into all the sorts of different themes and intricacies of it, and I was like, oh man, yeah, I don't care about spoilers now. I want to go and hear what this cool guy thinks about stuff. So I I do know things now. Um, I knew knew quite a lot going in because um, I've, I've saw this twice, once in 2D, once in 3D. I knew quite a lot going in the first time, just because there's been an awful lot of discussion about this movie and the um, allegation that it doesn't make any sense, um, which is actually generally true. Um, there's a lot of sort of things that happen in this movie which can be reconciled if you think about it like really hard and sort of do a bit of uh, fan on, you know, uh, when you. Um, make up something and pretend that it's definitely true um there's a lot of uh, things that the people in this movie do the characters do which you wouldn't uh, you or i wouldn't do like we'd know not to do and these are doctors and scientists um and i don't i'm not going to talk about what actually happens in the movie at all just because um apart from obviously the basic setup because i don't want to um lay any more spoilers out there than are there because I think it's it's probably better off to go in blind but there's a lot of um, how should I put this, there's a lot of alien technology in this film that is alien technology and is very MacGuffin-y, it'll do whatever it has to do in a certain situation um, in terms of the acting, it's fairly well acted, Michael Fassbender is excellent um, but that's that's just a statement you can make about any movie, really. If it's got with Michael him Fassbender. in it, yeah, yeah, he's 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 actually a really good actor, surprisingly enough. So um, just pretty much like list anything he's starred in, and he's yep. probably going to be really amazing in it. I'm just going to big up Centurion right now. Centurion, go and see it. All right. Yeah, cool. Um, <laughs> he's good. Um, Charlie's Theron is better than she was in Snow White. Um, less hammy. What? Th- there's there's still not much going on. Um, she 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 kind of goes goes from two over the top, and again I'm going from my own tastes. Um, two over the top to just sort of not really there, and her character doesn't really make make any sense as existing. Um, Nima Rapace is okay. She's she's uh, the kind of Ripley character because she's she's the main woman. Um. It's and directly equatable that she is Ripley, basically. Yeah, like they basically. go through the same sort of thing. Yeah, there's there's a lot that she does in this movie again, which doesn't really make sense. Um, but you know, she's okay. Um, I haven't seen her in anything else because I didn't see the Sherlock Holmes sequel because um, it was it was a Sherlock Holmes movie eh. starring Robert Downey Jr. Eh. Um, and I haven't seen the original Girl and the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo either. Um, eh. Milan has, and he's making dismissive noises. For both, I, I them, thought yeah. Milan was doing something gross. <laughs> oh, eh. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, just in general, this wasn't that great a movie. Um, it had horror elements to it, which worked. Um, which you would kind of hope for to be like the very the very least you'd expect for by um, it being a movie in the U- Alien universe by the guy who made Alien, um, and they are really horrible and and you, you can there's a lot more built on the uh, the pregnancy horror that you get in Alien 
um, which yeah. is sort of built on and brought to new lows or highs, either way you want to put it. Which Everything works very well. I hear about this movie is that it's about parenthood. I mean, not just pregnancy and the whole thing of having a parasite inside you, yeah. but like direct stuff about sort of odical complexes and that. I mean, you straight up have a line from a Michael Fassbender that's uh, who doesn't want to kill their father. Yes, and there's also uh, well, there's a lot of discussion from him because he's a robot. Um, there's a lot of discussion with him about because this is this is humanity going to meet what they think might well be their maker and um, obviously he's a robot so humanity is his maker and there's a lot of sort of discussion about that Um, and I think one of the main problems with this movie is the script the script is really not very good and it has one of the one of the major problems with it is it has a lot of thematic junk um, which I think is probably born of it being uh, rewritten um, there's a lot of uh, stuff that happens that you you can tell was trying to be kind of symbolic and self-referential but there's not enough of it to sort of link up um, I, I it's, it's kind of, again it's kind of difficult not to go into spoilers now um, but there, suffice to say there's a kind of revelation about a certain character's parenthood in the film which is um, not just arbitrary um, and pointless, and it, it, it's not set up at all. But it also doesn't have any impact on the movie at all. It's it's just there to be surprising, and it isn't. Um, man, this is tough to talk about. <laughs> See, m- um, the reason why I haven't really seen the film is because the I heard about the fact that it was like hyped up to the point that it was like dramatic, but it was just. I was not really attracted to the fact that it seemed like it was going to hit. It was going to be beautiful, but the script was going to be lackluster because Damon Lindelof is written only one screenplay that actually worked, and that was Star Trek. Everything else he's been involved in has been a colossal mess. Either that or Lost. Lost was a colossal mess. Yeah, it depends if you like me- um, yeah. the mess of Lost or not. But yeah, even if you like Lost, you can, you, can split, you can split hairs about um, how well Lost worked, but it was still a colossal mess. And the problem is, is that he likes mystery, and the problem is he doesn't like answering mystery. Hmm. He just likes setting up things. Like, uh, you have, like, the ideas of faith and stuff like that, and it's just kind of like, yeah, we're going to set up all these interesting questions, and then all of a sudden introduce an action sequence. Mm. And it's like, oh, let's forget about it all. Let's forget about all, all that setup because that's all interesting ideas that you can all think about, but let's just get to the point for the dum-dums in the audience. Well, he actually said in an interview that they were he was going to hold back some ideas for the sequel, oh, which is just a horrible... horrible I, hate, I hate it when they do that. Oh, my word. I'm going to talk about that late, uh, later on it's for another particular thing. terrible way to make movies. It's horrible. It's like... It's, it's like people say, oh, Christopher Nolan, he's so amazing. It's like, well, he is, well, he might not be, like, the best thing since sliced bread or something like that, but you know what he does? He has a beginning, he middle, makes a end. Complete film. He makes a complete damn film. Unlike most of these filmmakers nowadays. Duh! Don't see Cowboys and Aliens. <laughs> Do you go and see Prometheus. I mean, I, I've, I've been pretty much exclusively negative here. 
but um, I still actually quite enjoyed this movie. In fact, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's about sort of taking the good stuff with the bad, and the good stuff is really good. As I say, there's a great performance by Michael Fassbender, another great performance by Idris Elba, who plays the ship's captain. Um, there's, uh, I say, really good horror. There's especially there's a scene involving a medical procedure, which is l- like horrific, and it, it's it's obviously an attempt to sort of not necessarily top, but go back to the same well that the famous John Hurt chest explosion went from. And it's not quite as um, out of the blue and shocking as that, but it's pretty close. <laughs> um, well, let's be fair, you're you're never going to be as shocking with sci-fi horror than that in the first Alien. I mean, like, I, I know it's kind of one of those things people say, like, it's some sort of grand hyperbole or whatever, but, like, Alien is the watermark for sci-fi horror and nothing's yeah. going to top that in the short experience because it's been made and Prometheus was about normal people who were basically just truckers with a tight-knit family relationship and um, like that caters sort of more homestuck thing you know everything you know what's going on I mean I'd, I'd go as far as to say Alien's the best horror movie ever made except for maybe Seven I, I've been thinking about this and yeah Probably. Like, Seven's the only competition it would really have, because most uh, horror movies, at least American horror movies and German horror movies, are now torture porn, which is terrible. Yeah, or, or, or thrillers. I mean, I, I like a lot of thrillers, but people sort of tend, thrillers to, get not conf- horror. They tend to get confused. Um, yeah. Um, I would say The Thing holds, um, I think, holds the top place for me, but then that's just me. Cool. Oh, the because... Thing is pretty good as well, actually. Namely because it's got intelligent characters who are actually trying to think logically and still get um, get into huge amounts of trouble. Well, just that for animatronics that actually held up. Yeah. That and Alien both have that in their favour. I'd say it's less of a horror than Seven or Alien, though. So it's a third place to me, but those are three really good horror films. That's my recommendation. What three other films? Because I haven't seen previews yet. Even though it's like the one movie I really want to see this year, I just have not made it to the cinema. <laughs> you and it's like it's only it's seven pounds fifty to go see in three D over here. Like I should go see it. Cool. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth a look. It's 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 good fun. Um, and it's it's, it's the the horrible. It's horrible. There's a few jump scares which um you can take or leave. There's massive um continuity problems from the start. <laughs> um. It says at the beginning there's 17 crew, mem- crew members, and I counted the second time I watched it because I noticed a discrepancy. If you count up everyone who dies on screen or is alive at the end, you get 17. But not everyone who is in the movie and on the ship either dies on screen or is alive at the end. Like there's there's loads of random people who just turn up and then <laughs> like, vanish, and it makes no sense. And like there'll be a scene where they'll be oh they'll drive they'll drive to them this building with a buggy two two buggies and a jeep and then they'll come back with just two buggies and then later they're coming back with the two buggies and the jeep again and it and it just doesn't make any sense. Um, Man, when your ability to count is as bad as Michael Bay in Transformers: <laughs> Vengeance Fallen, like you need to reassess how you're making your film. Yeah, it, it, seriously, there are, there are there's bits that don't. That make about as much sense as, as that, really. Um, just basic things where you you could you could have CG'd in a ship 
or a, a thing or an, another Autobot, you know, in that case. It just wasn't picked up on, um, which is kind of disappointing. I think the problem is, it's the same problem comics have, is that editors are now there to control content, to tell you what you need and don't need, rather than to actually spot the problems and fix them. Mm. It's like this terrible thing and, where for some reason editors are considered creators, which they never will be. And, uh, and editors are also principally there to get rid of the shit stuff. Yeah, yeah and they, they don't do this anymore. They're not discerning enough. They tell you what to add because they feel they are creators. Mm. They're not. They, they're just able, they're supposed to be able to gauge an audience. And they can't even do that anymore. Oh, which is frustrating. Still, Prometheus, a film I'm going to see, definitely. Despite all the problems you've brought up. Oh, wait, one last question about Prometheus. Uh, How was the 3D? The 3D was um, very good. Uh, It was filmed in 3D, which is always a good plus. I mean, I saw it first in 2D, then in 3D, um, and the the 2D was at the Curzon here, which is quite a bit smaller screen, and it didn't suffer at all. It was was a good, um, effective film in 2D and in 3D it was in 3D um, the spaceship effects when it's landing it, um, look really nice in 3D but apart from that it's not better there's not there's not um, egregious 3D where things fly at the screen all the time so you know it, it's 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 fine but it's it's not worth it if it's twice the price well here it's literally like a pound more so <laughs> like all the movies I'm going to be watching are going to be in 3D which would be interesting, but That's like it pleases me whenever I hear there's a 3D movie without gimmicks, because it usually means they actually care about the 3D, rather mm. than just thinking, money. Well, but yeah, I, I think Ridley Scott is the kind of guy you can trust to yeah. make a movie because he wants to make it, rather than for gimmick. Well, yeah. Though, well, he's very either he wants to make it, or he wants to give Russell Crowe some money to hang out with him again. <laughs> He's not as bad as Tony Scott and, uh, what's his face, Denzel Washington. Oh, come on, Unstoppable mm. was amazing. Really? And Deja Vu, I quite like that one. I'm not going to... Um, uh, okay, Scott Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3 was terrible, but... Tony Scott hasn't made a good movie since are... True Romance. No, you're so wrong about Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. <laughs> I, I tried to say that seriously and I laughed. <laughs> I know I'm wrong, but I love that film. Oh. That Unstoppable, Unstoppable is a legitimately fun film. but I, I it, haven't it, seen it, but I flat out don't believe you. Come on! <laughs> Runaway Train, why not? They personify, uh, they personify Runaway Train as the most evil thing possible. But yeah, uh, getting back to Ridley Scott, uh, basically the problem with Ridley, uh, Ridley Scott in general is that he's a very good stylist, but he doesn't know what makes it, uh, what is a great script, so that's why his work is so um, all over the place all the time. Okay, so uh, Milan, yeah, what else so, have you been up to? Okay, well, I decided to go and invest in a movie called To Live and Die in L.A. Now, uh, William Friedkin has just released a film in the U.K. called Killer Joe with uh, involving uh, um, involving very dark themes, so I decided to uh, look into one of his... Uh, Older, more less regarded films. I mean, from the Oscar-winning director of um, *The French Connection* and the director of *The Exorcist*, 
right? Um, generally speaking, he's not been thought of to actually surpass those, at least those two films. Okay, so to live and die in LA, um, to steal the plot synopsis from, uh, uh, from allmovie.com, um, William Friedkin's crime thriller based on a book by US Secret Service agent Gerald Pettivish. Concerns an arrogant Secret Service official who wants to get his man at any price. Willem Dafoe plays Eric Masters, an ultra-smooth counterfeiter who manages to sidestep the police for years. He's so upfront about his dealings, in fact, when it comes to other um, undercover agents trying to make a deal with him at his health club, Eric tells him, I've been coming to this gym three times a week for five years. I'm an easy guy to find. People know they can trust me. But when a young and eager Secret Service agent, Richard Chance, William L. Peterson, you might have seen him in the, um, in the, um, the original CSI, um, CSI, or in Manhunter, the, the best um, Hannibal Lecter film. Bullshit. Carry on. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Richard Chance finds out that his partner has been cold-bloodedly murdered by Eric. He trains his, uh, his relentless search upon capturing Eric, whether by means of robbery, murder, or exploiting his friends as associates. As Chance erases the dividing line between good and evil, he drags his new partner, John Lejulovich, uh, and, uh, um, and Ruth Kander, an ex-con and um, informant, um, down the maelstrom with him. That basically just it gives you like the exact snapshot of what to live in Alde. Um, sorry, it gives you exact snapshot of what to live and die in LA is about. Essentially, it's um, the main character is not likable. He's very not likable, but it's basically seeing like this really a loose canon type of character become darker and darker and darker. I mean, pretty much. Um, like there's a love interest, a love interest. Um, um, I've mentioned uh, Ruth, um, played by Darlan Frugel. Uh, um, basically, he has sex with her, but then still uses her for information and threatens her uh, by uh, threatens to send her to prison, even though they have this sort of relationship. Well, that's what I do to everyone I have sex with. Of course, Tim. Well, that's why none of us are, are anywhere near you. <laughs> No, I'm just that's kidding. Why, that's why Max went to New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Correct. No, but yeah, um, but basically, like, literally, he he um he actually steal um he steals money. He goes um uh, and destroys um like evidence, steals evidence, um, harasses people and stuff like that. Literally, he's just kind of like he's the worst person you could ever you could ever meet. And it's just enthralling to see, like, w- like what people think is the traditional good guy just turning evil, right? And and somehow the only way we knew he was going to turn evil is because he does bungee jumping at the beginning what? of the. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, he becomes like really obsessed, and like this is Willem Dafoe's. Like, um, Willem Dafoe wasn't a big actor then. I mean, he's a bigger actor now, but in, uh, but this is like uh, this was probably like one of his breakthrough roles. As kind of like he was this um, like there was just a film before he got nominated <coughs> for Oscar in Platoon, and he uh, and Willem Dafoe is just is uh, is just um, like amazingly slimy, but yes, he is. Like, but what's really <laughs> odd about the film? He's more sympathetic than the main character. And that's what's intriguing about this film. There's this whole entire, like, this 10 minute sequence where, 
where Ma- um, where Masters makes um, um tries to make um makes a deal with the agents, right? Saying that they have to pay thirty thousand dollars in front money so he can counterfeit it for them, right? But then um but but then Chance is not given the additional money by his boss because his bo- uh, boss says ten thousand dollars is the limit. Right, and so using the informant, he hears about this crooked deal about an about an Asian man who wants to um, trade diamonds for uh, he wants trade trade money for uh, for stu- uh, for diamonds, right? And so basically kidnaps the Asian um, kidnaps the guy, right? F- takes his money, but then he gets shot, and he's found out to be an, an undercover FBI agent. And then it leads a chase with uh, with them being chased by the FBI, and they don't know that they're secret service while trying to get this money so they can just um, um, pin masters to the crime. And it's just amazing to see this whole entire thing. And the soundtrack is literally 80s. Like, the whole soundtrack's by a band called Wang Chung. And it's just kind of like, just imagine the most 80s things possible, and it's just like, increase it. It's, um, is this- it more 80s than Highlander? It's more eighties than Highlander. Blimey! It's kind of like if you watch Miami Vice actually made into a movie in the past, but then with more despicable characters and probably very very weird editing. I mean, like it's so it's so it's literally kind of like William Freakin decided to watch MTV one day, think, oh, that's a really great idea, and then took all the eighties music videos and made a movie, just a whole entire movie music video. Now the film does have problems, namely because it doesn't make sense. Literally, this whole entire film is just kind of like you've seen this guy change and stuff like that, <clears> but it's kind of like the partner makes no sense to the narrative. There's um, the editing at times is really ridiculous. Like um, you have this like um, like really drawn out shots, and all of a sudden you get a camera just like zooming into a, a, a helicopter shot, just zooming into buildings for no reason. Um, and then you've also got the fact that lots of the characters' motivations are not known at all. Like, kind of like um, the transformation of his partner makes no sense. Um, the characters know things they're not supposed to know uh, from other um, about other characters, and and generally speaking, this film is so close to being per- uh, to being uh, like one of the best films I've ever seen, but just completely loses it. Because it decide it decides that it's just um, it's not going to try and make um, well it's it's just images um, fla- uh, it's just flashing MTV images of the 1980s. It's kind of like if you wanted to live in the 80s, watch this film and you realise that's how the 80s is. Like no, no, the- again, I, I go with Highlander for that one. Beheadings all over the place. The, that's how they lived in the 80s. Yes, yeah, yeah, beheading yeah. <laughs> and Queen music soundtracking everything. But yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, it's just a lot of the film is just all based upon the idea that um, that when when everything go, um, when everything goes bad, it it get it can get worse and it just it does get worse. And I I I sincerely recommend this film. I don't think that you should spend too much money on going to see this. But see it for a great central performance by William Peterson, and um, and Willem Dafoe in, prob- in probably like one of the great um, in probably one of the roles that set him up as the person um, as the character actor he is today, 
And this film actually sets up all the cliches that we would assume with action cinema. Like the line, um, I'm too old for this shit, came from this film. Um, his partner dying three days from retirement, this film. <gasps> and, and, and it's like... Yeah, so it's, this film is just... Uh, it's kind of like it sets up the genre um, genre motifs, but then it decides to say f u to them and decide to just try and make the most uncom- um, um, uncommercial film possible, even though it is as commercial as possible. It's a contradiction. Okay, so uh, another of the things I've been up to is uh, requires a little bit of backstory to it. So, um, did I ever tell you guys about how Chris Robeson of uh, Eyes on Me fame and of uh, cleaning up JMS's shitty Superman arc fame. Uh, quit DC and Marvel Comics forever because they're immoral bastards or whatnot. No. I, I may have talked about my own issues with the company. Yeah. Anyway, I think, yeah. I think you might have t- um, talked to me about it. Yeah, it was related to him taking a stand. I was like, man, he is right. Anyway, so he did this some months ago, and uh, rather fortuitously, he was some months into starting his plan to... Uh, take his own independent book publishing label and do a comics label spinning off of it, which now exists on Comixology and in the future graphic novels, and is called Monkey Brain Comics. And uh, I read two of the first issues that have come out on this, because I ran out of money in my UK bank account, I haven't opened a New Zealand one yet, so that's me done with Comixology for the moment. <laughs> um, and it's a really good label that has a great variety of genres if these two are anything to go by and the previews for the other ones are. I mean, we have, out of the two I've read, we have Edison Rex, which is by Robeson himself, uh, Dennis Culver, and coloured by Steve Downer, which is basically like a buff Lex Luthor uh, tricks Superman into killing himself. I'm, I'm using the analogies here because it's easier than actually, you know, pretending that they're not you know, analogies to his characters or whatnot. Yeah. Um, by convincing him that, uh, whether this is true or not is another matter, that um, he is not only an alien, he is an alien virus who infected a pregnant woman and so he was born with his powers and stuff. And that uh, as time would pass, the virus would develop to uh, basically make it so he would conquer this planet for the alien virus race. And he was like, oh man, yeah, I can believe that. I've been feeling kind of angry lately. And he uh, steps into an atomizer and dies. And so the Lex Luthor type, who is Edison Rex, is like, oh, well, that was easy. Um, but now there's no hero to save the world from all this other stuff. So he dons a jetpack and some giant fists and uh, decides to go be a hero. Which is, it, basically, it feels like a prologue for first issue. It's 17 pages, so uh, for 99 cents, which is 64 pence to you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a great price for 17 pages. I mean, consider that it's about uh, 17 to 20 pages from Marvel. It will cost you anywhere between 3 and $4. And that's the day of release as well. So, you know, it's a bit of a price difference there. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a prologue, but for what you're getting for 64 pence, it's ridiculously amazing. Like, it looks good. It's incredibly well written. Like they don't feel like carbon copies of the characters, even though you know they are basically meant to represent the ideals of them. And it feels like it's going to go somewhere good with future issues, which hopefully I'll be able to read uh, once I open an account over here. 
And uh, the other book was The October Girl by Matthew Dow Smith, which is a more sort of sketchy, artsy thing about a a woman who's kind of bored of her day-to-day life and crappy job and that, and reminisces about her past a little bit. And uh, then suddenly uh, she is visited by her childhood imaginary friend, who thankfully is not a teddy bear who smokes a bong, because that would be a terrible movie, <laughs> and is not some sort of strange problem thing. And uh, again, that's only as far as it goes, because this one is 14 pages for 99 cents. As I think the key thing with Monkey Brain Comics is the people they've got on board for this are basically free to dictate their own price within reason and their own page counts. But you're you still generally get a good amount. I mean, 14 seems to be a lower mark of what you get for pages, and that's still a far better deal than you'd get from any other publisher. And uh, this, it, it doesn't feel quite as promising as Emerson Rex, because you don't get the high concept of it in this first issue. You just get what is literally the prologue. It goes to the point of just, oh, now something's happening, and then it ends. But um, I think it's pretty enough that you can forgive that with the knowledge that you're going to get more story. Like as it continues to come out for this cheap price. So I'd recommend both of them. I did want to go and read uh, Bandette by Paul Tobin and Clean Coover, who are basically like the best husband and wife creator team in the world. They did uh, Gingerbread Girl for Top Shelf, which was a great story about stuff like identity and all that junk, whatever, right? I mean, who cares about identities? God. Um, and it looks amazing. Is that the series about a uh, young girl who's an art thief? Hence, uh, Bandette, because Bandette, Bandette, oh, that's funny. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm into people doing things that aren't superhero comics at the moment. It's fair to say I'm almost completely burnt the fuck out on them. So, Monkey Brain Comics as a whole, uh, generally pleases me. Um, so, um, so did you just highlight the two that you liked, or is there only two you that you The only two I've read. I've had no money to read any others, which is leaving me gutted because I really want to read Bandit and because next week um, Kevin Church, who's a webcomic webcomic artist, shit no he's not, he's a webcomic writer of uh, (laughs) some renown um, is kicking off his series which is the uh, I think there's only one $2 series so far which is like 30 pages and uh, he will be the second $2 series I have no idea what the page count will be I'm planning yeah I'm planning to buy Bandit you really do need to buy Bandette. Because, um, I mean, the art just looked amazing. Um, it was basically the, t- the three that I was interested in. I haven't bought any yet because I'm fearful of buying things on the internet because I like things made out of paper. Is, um, yeah. is, uh, Crimson, um, Crim- so not Crimson Rex. Um, I know you just talked about it. Why did they even forget the title? It but basically, yeah. Um, Bandette and Aesop's Fables. No, no, Aesop's Ark. Uh, Yes, I think it's like that looks interesting too. I mean, they yeah. all look interesting, which is really in their favour. Um, yeah, because they don't seem like, like traditional comic tales, shall we say. Well, Oh no, this is the thing, is superheroes, the problem is, in America, I think this is because of World War II and because, like, American comics got developed in isolation from, like, all of Europe, and of course they weren't interested in Japanese comics. But they developed in only one way, whereas everything else that was in isolation in Europe kind of grew in multiple genres and stuff to represent the strife at the time. America was just, oh, we're the superheroes going out there kicking ass, and 
for some reason they've been in Arrested Development ever since, which is like, you get great, great stories out of superheroes. But it is so nice to get different genres in Western comics that, like, you would not even believe. Yeah, and I, mean, and I think... I think that's what's going to be the undoing of Marvel and DC in the future, and this is, the, um, and I think Monkey, uh, Monkey Brain and and the like are going to probably be the future of comics as I see it. Well, that's what I've been hoping as well. I mean, and this this entire first week's bunch of titles, I think it's you know it's under seven dollars for the whole of this initial line, which is no, it's about five dollars. It's about five dollars something, I think. Yeah, like you, you honestly. It is an amazing deal just to go get that much comics for the price you're paying, especially on the Comixology format where everything has kind of been on release, either three or four dollars, which is the same price as the paper versions. And I mean, Comixology has an issue with it already, and this is the one downside to Monkey Brain Comics, is you don't own the comics you download because, I mean, you're, if you're reading them in browser or on anything that isn't like a smart device, like if you have an iPad or iPod or Android, that's great. You actually download the comics. They are on your device. Everything else, you are buying a license to stream them, which is a terrible business model. No, that, no I mean, that's that's but, just generally a problem with, like, say, iTunes and stuff like that. Yeah, people might not realize this, but I'm just going to um, bring this to your attention. When you buy music off iTunes, you're not actually buying the music. You're buying a license to play that music. Yes, and if you ever read the terms and conditions to any of these online services, they say that they can choose at any point to remove the content, whether it's because like they've stopped servicing on the site or because they're like closing or whatever. They can choose to cut off everything you've bought. Um, same, same, by the way, is true of Steam. Yes. Valve could collapse Which, next like, week, and that would be the end of any of like your entire Steam library would be pointless and. Irrelevant. Considering that Steam makes up like ninety percent of all PC gaming, that's really worrying. Yeah, exactly. Half half my games are on Steam. Yeah, I mean, the advantage is like if you hear like Valve are uh, going to close or whatever, you can just never connect Steam to the internet again, and your files will still, in theory, be playable. You, uh, you know what? Um, oh no, you need to but, you need to connect Steam every now and then. You can't just always be yeah. in offline mode. Yeah. Yeah. I should also say that one of the times where this was actually fully revealed is when, uh, when the Kindle came out in America a couple of years ago, but like say maybe three to four years ago, they were selling 1984 illegally, right? And so they deleted 1984, and people's uh, on people's Kindles, 1984 got deleted as well. It's so ironic. It was that book. <laughs> yeah, like they they could not have chosen a worse book to reveal the fact that they can control and observe all the content on your Kindle. <laughs> Brilliant. But uh, that that almost put me off getting a Kindle Touch, but I still got it and I'm still loving it in my mouth. I'm planning to get a Google Nexus, but then that's just me. Uh, I don't know what that is, and at the same time, I'm trying to balance out my fueling the monopolies of ridiculous companies. So having an Android will cover my uh, spooning Google. Having a Kindle will come on my spoon in Amazon. And having an iPod I found in a bush will continue to feed Apple crumbs. I love my bush pod. <laughs> yeah. The only reason why I'm thinking about getting a Google Nexus is because the, uh, the Kindle Fire is not as, uh, is not as good as, as it. Because it runs in pretty much the same way, except that it's, a bit, it's better than the Amazon Kindle 
I mean, the, of the Kindle Fire, which is the nearest comparable thing. Well, the Kindle Fire's like big selling point to me originally was that it had uh, a whole bunch of DC collections exclusively on it. And uh, since then, like, because it angered Barnes and Noble, they have now gone. Oh no, the, the Nook can have these as well. We're sorry, don't hate us. I'm just like, oh, now now it doesn't really matter. So just yeah, I'm we're never going to get the Nook, are we? No, and that kind of bugs me because I would love a way to read Archie comics portably, other than you know buying Archie comics. I may have just fucked up my logic. <laughs> anyway, uh, Tim, what else have you done? Um, well, the main thing is, uh, last month, <laughs> Game of Thrones Series 2 ended, so I thought well, now it would be a nice time to do a sort of retrospective on it. Um, now, I neither of you have watched this in its entirety, I don't believe. Right? I have watched none of uh, the Clash of Kings series, but I have now read... I am now currently 68% of the way through the book. Oh, right, on Kindle, is it? Yes. Cool. Which means... Uh, despite getting the book in paperback for £5, because I've had to get it on Kindle as well, I have now paid its full price. I'm disappointed. And what do you think of it so far, just as a side note? Um, it's not as good as Game of Thrones, because, like, I don't know if it's because if I'm reading a series of books, I'm used to the second one being a sophomore slump. But it feels like this is just the book that's going, oh, this is just telling you things that will happen in other books later down the line. And stuff's still happening, and I'm like, that won't finish until another book, even though it might. <laughs> like, it's just my mind is not mentally equipped to give that much of a shit about it. Weirdly enough, the, the criticism you're making about that book is criticism that's been levelled against another one of the books, which I won't tell you which one. Um, oh, tell me which one, I don't care. Okay, Feast for Crows. Uh, I thought it would be. All, all set up, apparently. Um, well, that's what people think. Uh, though actually, I, I, I've actually um, reread some of that and actually have come to think quite a lot of it. Um, no, you, you, you've got good stuff coming, don't worry. Um, big big stuff happens at the end. Mm. And, well, uh, um, Milan, how much do you care about spoilers? Um, you know me, I don't care about them at all because I, I find that with the spoilers and stuff like that, I find that the enjoyment of such a product and stuff like that shouldn't really be destroyed by um, spoilers because it should stand on its own merit. Yes, it's the execution. It's not the spoiler that matters. You can know what happens and the material can still lift it above that knowledge. Correct. So, I still get shocked. Mm. It won't necessarily... So, it's not a proven rule. No. It's just how I find things. And uh, where I am in Game of Thrones at the moment, it's just had um, Brand Surrender Winter fell to uh, Greyjoy, which, A, disappointed me so much. I would have loved it if he was just, like, told all his villagers that, like, fuck it, fight back. That would be cool. But, like, as far as the scene goes, it's been a big payoff to the whole novel basically being so far just going, hey, Greyjoy's kind of lame. And you're going, yeah, he is. Basically, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the second series um, is not as good as the first series. Um, it's still quite enjoyable, and there's um, definite elements which are not necessarily improved, but sort of different. But um, in general, it's it's a bit of a slide down. That being said, this series had the best episode yet. 
It's just that the, the series in general has not quite been as good. And I think most of that has been an increased sort of deviance from the source material. And I mean, when I watched the first series, I um, had never read any of the books. And going into the second series, I'd read all of them. So obviously my expectations had somewhat changed. But um, it's there, there are some plot lines here which are warped beyond recognition. Um, some characters are replaced with other characters, which you can kind of forgive w- with... Um, the condensing nature of uh, adaptation but um, there's other plot lines which are given different emphasis which doesn't make any sense um, it, it, it's it's difficult to sort of explain that without spoiling too heavily and I don't want to spoil too heavily um, but there's a few decisions made by the Starks in the book which um, uh, the same decisions are made in the TV series but all of their motivations for doing these things are gone these decisions aren't good decisions. They're bad decisions. Um, so basically what this series is, is watching the heroes do stupid things for no good reason. <laughs> um, which is not great. I mean, uh, series one, I think I think we can be pretty safe in spoiling the first series and book of Game of Thrones. Um, oh. it's, a, it's essentially about watching a very good man try and do good and actually doing bad. Um, Ned Stark, you know, so tied to his honour that he can't he can't do what he has to do, which is, you know, be sneaky, um, be two-faced, be duplicitous. Um, he, 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 I mean, he, he warns the enemy that he's going, that he's onto them, which is a stupid thing to do, <laughs> because it results in him getting his head chopped off. Um, spoilers. <laughs> but yeah, um, th- th- in general, well, let's let's break it down a bit. The, the cast, first of all. Um, the cast of Game of Thrones is very good, and it's always been very good. Um, one of the things they, they sort of do, which is kind of that weird tendency that um, American fantasy tends to have where everyone is British, because um, <laughs> if it's Game of Thrones is written by an American, and there's nothing that says that um, a medieval setting has to be Britain. I mean, it can be anywhere, but no, everyone is British. Um, <laughs> but that On the note of George R. R. Martin... Is it me, yeah. or does he look like he should uh, drive trains for a living? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's the flat cap and the beard, or how he's a jolly fat guy with uh, riches and stuff, but I look at him and I, I just think, like, Batman would fucking love trains. I could see him doing that. Yeah. Um, I would, I, I would say he wouldn't, <laughs> no, no, he wouldn't be driving the trains, he would be one of those guys who bought those train sets and then made like this, have this whole entire room with, a uh, whole entire room with just like these miniature train sets and these towns and stuff like that, like in Superman Returns. Well, for all we know, he He might well have a train set. I mean, he's a millionaire now, he can do whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> Why is this relevant? It's just, it's the only thing I ever think when I see him is man, this dude has to love trains because of how he dresses. Just there's no way of getting around it. That just reminds me of that song from the guy uh, from the guy who does ASDF called the Train Song. Oh, oh, dear, don't even tell me about this. Uh, we're getting more and more <laughs> off topic. Well, one thing you can say about George R. R. Martin <laughs> is he, he bloody loves American football. <laughs> you you read his blog um, called Not a Blog, and it's it's entirely about the New York Giants. It's kind of sweet. Um, nice. and, and then the comments are all people yelling at him to write more and then he's like the oh, Giants have got this playoff and then they've got to do this to win this thing and then they're like what's going to happen to Jon Snow it's really funny <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, yeah. I, think, I think he's like kind of like 
I'm just talking about sports, the wrong fan base, really. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's cute. I mean, I don't really like American football, but um, we'll get along with that. I do. But yeah, the the, right. the um the cast, as I say, um, very strong cast in the first series. Um, obviously, a few major actors have been killed off. Uh, Mark Addy, um, Sean Bean. Um, but they've been replaced by other good actors. Uh, Stephen Delane uh, plays Stannis Baratheon. Uh, Liam, Liam Cunningham, who's um, by far, well, not by far the best, uh, one of the best actors on the series now, comes in as uh, Sir Davos Seaworth, who's um, one of the um, fan favourite characters. And, yeah, he's uh, my favourite character of the book, so that's, it's good to know that he's played well. And um, as particularly Gwendolyn Christie as Brienne of Tarth. Brienne of Tarth is my favourite character from the series. Um, she's a seven-foot-tall um, woman knight who kicks ass and takes names, which is not actually a knight because she's a woman, but uh, you know what I mean. She's a she, big person in armour with a sword. <laughs> she's <laughs> got to be part of the guard for a bit. Yeah, but she's, she's not a knight because she's a woman and it's it's weird rules. You can't... Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, yeah, like, she, she's excellent. She is amazing. Um, and 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 you'll probably be pleased to know the the woman is excellent. They actually, you know, they didn't um, do any silly sort of Hobbit stuff or um, trickery. They actually cast a really big woman uh, called Gwendolyn Christie, uh, who's really really good as Brienne Tarth. She's got a, a sort of the um, she's got this sort of uh, steely demeanour, but you can actually tell you know there's there's a, a human heart in there as well. Um, and I'm really looking I, I forward think... to. Um, future developments there because uh, her character really gets expanded upon in um, Storm of Swords and Feast for Crows so that's going to be really shame, good. the shame to it all with her though is you do have to feel for Gwendolyn Christie because she has basically been cast deliberately as an unattractive woman well that's the thing um, all through the books um, Brienne of Tarth is described as being hideously ugly and, Gwen- and Gwendolyn Christie isn't hideously ugly she's quite pretty she looks really nice um, but the same is true of Tyrion Tyrion is meant to be like hideously ugly and um, as I think we mentioned last week or before, Peter Dinklage is a very attractive man. Um. Just like hey, HBO, I think they struggle to cast ugly people. I don't think there are that many actors who don't have some some sort of attractiveness about them. Um, and uh, Carice Van Outen um, comes in as Melisandre. Um, Gemma Whelan is added to the cast. Natalie Dormer. Uh, and uh, Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter Una Chaplin, um, which is quite fun. She doesn't look like him. She's not got the little uh, uh, toothbrush moustache. Um, <laughs> and yeah, in, in general, you know, it, it's it's enjoyable um, performances. Um, Peter Dinklage is, has moved up uh, since his Emmy win to being first billed, um, which is quite nice. Um, and it's definitely his his show now. Um, but you know, there's, there's good support. Um, Lena Headey is good, uh, you know. But it's it, it's it's a good cast. <laughs> is what I'm trying I, to say. I have to ask the same question I ask every time we talk about Game of Thrones, and that uh, is Varys still amazing in the TV show Clash of Kings? Um, he's not in it as much, um, but when he is, there's some fun stuff, um, and there's there's some there's some good stuff. There's there's actually some areas of the character of Varys are expanded on which haven't been expanded on in the books um, we, we know more about his backstory in the books but we don't know um, how he was gilded for example which isn't told here but it's kind of hinted that you know maybe he might sort of start to um, and there's some good scenes between him and Tyrion as well because uh, Tyrion is now the hand of the king um, 
and there's a kind of uneasy alliance between Tyrion and Varys because they both want to uh, stop the city from being sacked but it's not really clear how how much they actually like each other how much they want to work together and obviously Tyrion being from the Lannisters and Varys doesn't like Lannisters at all because he was Hand of the King before the Rebellion this is all uh, really deep history <laughs> he wasn't Hand of the King he was uh, Court of Whispers or whatever it is um, and the main problem as I said is the adaptation and the the process of um, putting some of these scenes onto the screen now um, this, this series has I think had about 65 million it was that kind of ballpark budget which is um, amazing like there are big budget movies with that uh, price tag on them these days um, and it's kind of amazing that they're able to make the setting of the book feel so real I mean they go to Iceland there's there's scenes set north of the wall which is a snowy rocky uh, freezing hellhole so they went to a really cold ruggedly beautiful place on the earth and not, not that Iceland's a hellhole it's actually got lovely hot springs I'm told uh, I'm getting on a sidetrack um, they go to well my sister's been there and she <laughs> regales about the fact that it's got very nice glaciers mm, mm. This, and, and, and that there is I mean you can you can talk about how you know it's good having low budget and you can have green screen these days which is um, and matte paintings which are indistinguishable but there's something about seeing a group of 200 actors and horses riding across a massive snowy plain with real mountains in the distance and it's really there and they're all actually cold that you can't get in a studio um, but uh, by the same token that there's a few um, relics of this being a adaptation of a, se- of a book series to HBO um, particularly the sex position um, which I mean uh. was one of them was the main Almost the only criticism I had last series was sex. I think that's the only position. big criticism for the series entirely, like yeah. the biggest. I think I think the best way, the way I've always ex- I've been explaining this to people whenever they've asked me, the best way to go into how this expedition is ramped up this series. There's a scene which opens with um, a man and woman having sex, pans out, and it's, we see that we're seeing this through a peephole of another man who's having oral sex. And then that pans out, and we see that we're seeing that through people of another man, Littlefinger, who's the character we're following in that scene. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to go into what happens later on in that scene, but uh, it kind of builds and builds in a, uh, a kind of spiral of depravity. Um, and I mean, it's not that the world of the books doesn't have sex in it, because it does. And it has uh, gra- fairly graphic de- depictions of sex. But it's not done in such an exploitative manner. And I mean, as much as you can sort of try and sugarcoat it, the fact that there are actual people on on set being naked does make it more visceral. And it does go beyond anything that's in the books. Uh, and it, it there's no need for it. Um, I've often said what they what they did was they took all of the um, the books. And they cut out um, bits of every aspect of them apart from the sex, which they doubled. And that's basically what happened. I mean, it's not that there isn't sex in the books. It's that it's being focused on to the loss of all the other elements. Mm. Cool. That's not cool. That's bad. It's not the opposite of cool. 
It's I'm joking. I'm joking. Freaking heck. Why would I say that? <laughs> That's what we want to know. It sounds like Clash of Kings is basically joint part pleasing adaptation and unfortunate adaptation due to the various things going on. Yeah, and well, I mean, some some storylines are better than others. I mean, they have to make up... There's, there's one of the things about um, the series is not all of the storylines happen at the same time. It's that not all the plot lines are resolved at the end of each book. It's kind of like a rolling thing rather than a sequential thing. Um, and they have to make up storylines to occupy characters to make it fit a standard um, television series, which um, it's not that it, it doesn't work. It's that it's... It kind of some some storylines are stretched and some are compressed. Like, um, in particular, the storylines of Daenerys and Jon Snow um, are good in this in this seri- in this book, um, but there's not much. It, it's really, uh, I think in Daenerys there's only four or five chapters. It's basically telling you, you know, keeping her in this place. In the series with Daenerys, they have to make up a plot. And in John, they ha- they stretch out what happens in one chapter, uh, no, two chapters, to to become about six episodes, which means that the the order of it has to be sort of broken up, and the emotional effect of the ending is completely removed, um, which is a massive shame because um, all these all of this um, wheel spinning is happening at the same time as episode 9 Blackwater which I've, I've referred to before as it's the best episode yet um, partly because it was written by George R.R. Martin um, who wrote an episode last series which was very much a filler episode where not much happened but was still one of the best just because it was written by him um, and George R.R. Martin by the way has a career in screenwriting um, that he uh, was very heavily into before and during him becoming an, an, an author so you know this is this is very much his 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 game he knows what he's doing and um that episode is 50 minutes of pretty much real time of a siege um and it cost about 11 million it's directed by the guy who made uh, dog soldiers whose name will come back to me eventually i remember um uh, neil marshall neil marshall, neil marshall. Uh, yes. and i mentioned him earlier with centurion starring michael fassbender Woo-hoo. yes it's the only um episode so far that's set in one place you know it's only about um, Tyrion uh, Cersei and uh, the King's Landing that sort of area and it's this big siege and um, it's amazing It's it's got clever dialogue it's got um, amazing special effects it's got um, intrigue going on uh, with the Queen and Sansa it's got um, sort of brutal bloody, bloody battle scenes um, and it's got um intelligent siege tactics as well it's 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 amazing i mean it's not quite as good as it was in the book because it has to take place at night and they have to cut out some of the more bombastic elements um because um 11 million wouldn't have been enough um that's one one of the wonderful things about uh, books is you can do absolutely anything and you, you can't do absolutely anything when it's live action um but it really is amazing and i mean it's almost to the point where they could they could cut a few of the other scenes and and make it an hour an hour and a half movie and put out in theatres, um, and you, you could advertise it well enough. Um, it's it's really it's not TV. It's 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 movie making on television. Um, so, if for no other reason, 
um, if you're following it so far, it's it's worth checking out the second series just for episode nine, Blackwater. Some of the epi- some of the other episodes aren't as good. Um, there's there's always been good elements in every episode, even some of the really sort of naff ones. Um, but uh, Blackwater is probably the best hour of television I've ever seen. Very high praise indeed. Well, I definitely have to try and check that out to see if your if your uh, summation is correct or not. It's a personal summation, so you know <laughs> your mileage may vary. But uh... okay, uh, looking at the time, uh, shall we start having you two talk to me about Spider-Man? Sure. Spider-Man. Okay. Spider-Man. Well, Spider-Man is a uh, superhero created in 1966 by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Do you want want something specific or...? Spins his web. Uh, (laughs) Tell me about why it's really important that Amazing Spider-Man had so much to do with his actual parents as opposed to it being a stupid decision. Um, Um, it's, It's a stupid decision. It's a stupid decision. Okay, good to know. The, one of the main reasons why it's a stupid decision is that it isn't resolved. Because they decide to <laughs> save it for their sequels. The plotline is completely sequels! dropped. Sequels! Uh, uh. References made to maybe um, the lizard knows something about it, um, but we won't I know till the sequel. <laughs> because they work together, Max. Why did they work together? Okay, this is the movie. <laughs> this is the new movie directed by Mark Webb, which is rebooting. Uh, the Spider-Man franchise as The Amazing Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield, um, Emma Stone and Reese Ifans and Martin Sheen. And um, we didn't like it that much. No. We just went and saw this yesterday. Um, In two dimensions. To, to get to get something out of the way, this is not a worse movie than Spider-Man 3. I would say that if, if it's anything, it's probably on par. In well, my Spider-Man 3 was a betrayal of an established character, whereas you can... I mean, obviously, it, it's still Peter Parker as Spider-Man, but the let's face it, the character is different here. Different actor, yeah. different characterization, Um And, you know, it's 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 it, there wasn't the same sort of sense of befoulement. But it, I think, I think in, uh, just in terms of principle, it is still a better movie. I, I watched this one and enjoyed it. It's not as good as uh, Spider-Man. It's not in the same... League as Spider-Man 2 um, which is the best superhero film ever made but um, it's it's still okay I thought I, I when I walked out I wasn't sorry I'd spent 450 on it um, but I was sorry that you know we weren't going to get any more Sam Raimi <laughs> I was I was pretty much kind of like when I walked out I was like I wanted to, I literally told Tim when the credits came up um, pretty much I said I miss Sam Raimi yeah um, but I I I would say that I was first like oh that was okay walking out, but then as I started thinking about it, there's just too much wrong with it for me to actually consider it a, a good film. It is a bad film. It's not a horror. It's not a horrible film. It's not the one of the worst films I've ever seen. It's just a really shoddy film. Yeah, and and I mean one of the sort of shames about it is you can see what definitely what they were going for, and um at its heart this is a good Spider-Man movie it's just it's got so many um, weird decisions and missed uh, plot points um, and subplots that vanish halfway through 
um, like his parents, which was uh, one of the central focuses of the, mar- the marketing. But they you know, they, I guess the marketers didn't realize that or didn't care that you know that wasn't actually a, a big okay, part yeah, of the movie. That, yeah, that was pretty much that was one thing that disappeared. There was also the fact that he was hunting for ben, uh, uh, Uncle Ben's killer. That's like spoilers. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Ben dies in this one too, in almost exactly the same circumstances. Man, like, this is why you shouldn't do Origins, because after a while, Uncle Ben dying is just parody of itself. Yeah. It became parody to me. I, so I have, have to stop me laughing at I have certain no, points. I have no problem uh, spoiling how Uncle Ben dies in this movie, because we all know Uncle Ben dies. <clears throat> um, in, in the comic, and also in uh, Sam Raimi's movie, to a pretty faithful extent, Spider-Man, before he's Spider-Man, becomes a wrestler to try and get money uh, the wrestler rips him off a robber robs from the wrestling promoter uh, he doesn't do anything to stop it and that guy later um, kills Uncle Ben and he gets all guilty and and, and feels responsible uh, in this movie he is buying some chocolate milk and the shopkeeper won't sell him chocolate milk because he's not got two cents to make the full price so when the shopkeeper gets robbed he doesn't do anything to help him because he wouldn't let him have any chocolate milk and then the guy shoots Uncle Ben (laughs) because Uncle Ben (laughs) wrestles the gun away from him because he accidentally dropped basically it's like the normal origin except instead of wrestling chocolate milk and, and two cents. Two <laughs> cents. Okay. Uh, I've, I've got nothing. Yeah, but then, okay, then. Okay. But then you've also got the mysterious, uh, the, uh, the the um the disappearing um disappearing Bollywood actor. Yes. Um. There's there's a guy who um, the lizard is trying to stop who vanishes. Um. He literally gets thrown off a bridge by Spider-Man, and that's the end of him. <laughs> Maybe uh, Spider-Man killed him. <laughs> No, 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 he, he's still in that car, he's perfectly fine, he's probably just hanging there. I guess I'll go That's, home now. <laughs> that, that is, that, that, is, um, that is what we can believe from that shot. There's, um, there's a picture that was released in May that's showing the lizard making the character into a lizard, but in the film, not there! Not there! Well, maybe not making him to a lizard, he's probably strangling him, but it's just like, he's not there! Like um, about a third of the way through this movie, um, Kurt Connors points out a machine in the corner and says, "Oh, you know, that's a machine we invented, which can uh, dis- d- deploy any sort of chemical um, all over any city in minutes." Uh, you know, but we know we didn't do it just in case someone put something dangerous, like you know, a, a, a dangerous ah. virus in there. Anyway, Peter, let me just move you along. And, he, and I just turned to Milan and went, third act." No, it's not <laughs> just third <laughs> act. It's not just third, act. Even check it's third act. Batman begins. Exactly. What's this <laughs> microwave emitter that just got stolen from Wayne Enterprises? Not even Chekhov's gun. That's Chekhov's <laughs> dumbest fucking idea. That's Chekhov's massive machine that blows steam all over everyone. Like, like I. Why is this movie so fucking dumb? But at the same time, there's there's a great comedic sense to this movie. There's yeah. um, some really funny stuff that happens like that. Um, yeah, the love story between him and Gwen Stacy is 
about as convincing as the love story in 500 Days of Summer, which was uh, Mark Webb's other movie. Um, I thought that, not really, re- but okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean? thought I thought it was really good and um, actually quite convincing to an extent. Hmm. What I mean to an extent is that I just wish that you didn't have all the superhero things around it, so that this relationship just seemed like it was just tacked on instead of the main thing because it felt like. I wanted this to be mainly that love story, not the lizard and not the action sequences and and pretty much the mythology. It's like, oh, look, what happened to his parents? No, I want to find out if he gets out with that girl or not. It's simple, simple things like that because Spider-Man is not about intrigue. It's not about, oh, pathos about his parents' death. No, it's about pimples. It's about being bullied. It's about getting the girl. It's about being a teenager. teenager. Um, and I, I, I mean... <laughs> The, the main reason they seem to have put in the uh, parents plot is to give it some sort of emotional depth. But Sequel! You don't, you don't have to, because this is Spider-Man, and his uncle dies. <laughs> it, what they should have, what they could have done would be leave Uncle Ben dying to the next movie, and just have him becoming Spider-Man. There wouldn't have been anything that wrong with that. Um, no. Because because they they've been building on the emotional sort of trauma of his parents vanishing, and his parents do vanish. They're not what happened to them is never um, cleared up. It's either it's, by intention or by error. During during one montage, which is not about this, um, we get a sh- like a like a really quick glimpse of a, what appears to be a newspaper headline saying they died in a plane crash. On Bing, of all things. On Bing. <laughs> Hey, Bing sponsored this movie. <laughs> we, and, and, you know, there's there's some funny stuff there where he starts trying to type and his fingers stick to the keyboards because he's Spider-Man, um, which is quite Also funny. because the keyboard's sticky from filthy stuff. Yeah. It does actually bring up a good joke later on that Uncle Ben... Um, Uncle ben and the Uncle Ben in this is funnier than the other Uncle Ben. Then, but not as really? good. Really? But not, not as good. good. Not as good. Okay. Um, it did actually make me think of uh, Kickass when he keeps masturbating, but um, <laughs> I don't think that was an intentional illusion. But yeah, um, um, that's a good movie, Max. Fuck off. I don't. It, no, no, Max. The comic, like, the comic has coloured my opinion of it so much. I don't know. I hated Kickass, but then that's because I think it's a nihilist, um, a nihilistic waste of uh, waste of time. But yeah. Um, but anyway, back to Spider Man. See, um, I'm going to say the positive things I've thought of it first before I go into the meat of what I hated about this film that made me seriously writhe in anger. Is that... (laughs) Okay, I mentioned that the Garfield and Emma Stone's chemistry was pretty much spot on. I found that it really worked very well. It's just the rest of the film sucked. But then Stanley's cameo is probably one of the best cameos ever had. Yeah, that's the best Stanley cameo. Yeah, we won't explain it anymore. Tell me um, all I can say is, do you remember the scene? We can, we can, we can tell. No, no, Milan, Milan. You remember the scene in Last Crusade, where they're they're trying to find the room buried underneath the museum, and the guy's got a rubber stamper and he's stamping books. Don't tell me anything else. Exactly. <laughs> 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 that's that's what they go for, <laughs> and it works. Yeah, and that's it works. Very- and it worked very well and I like some of the shots that they used it's kind of like the the, the colour palette was actually quite good in the night scenes yep. and when I'm just going about that now I'm going to get into the negativity I made a list <laughs> I made a list okay we've already covered the plot threads completely gone or missing so we have 
the mysterious character that disappears off a bridge for no reason. He gets thrown off a bridge by Spider-Man. <laughs> no, no, he got thrown off by uh, he got he got thrown off by the lizard, and then Spider-Man saves him. Just as you do. You got the fact that he doesn't find Uncle Ben's killer, and it's not really adequately explained. Yeah, to put that in context, he spends about ten, fifteen minutes, and I mean ten, fifteen minutes, like constantly searching for his killer. It's the whole reason he becomes Spider-Man. Like, and then it, and then it's just a talk with. Uh, and then it's just a talk with uh, Dennis Leary that just solves the whole entire thing. It's like, oh, there you go, there, there's it done. Goodbye, bye. But like, ten or fifteen minutes in a film is a long time to waste on something pointless. Yeah, like that's rough. That's as bad as dancing with a non-existent dead daughter. And I mean, you just, <laughs> <laughs> you, I just think back to how it was done in Spider-Man. Um, and I don't think that's an unfair illusion because that was only ten years ago, um, and it was it was very clean that the whole um, trajectory of him becoming Spider-Man was very cleanly done. In, in yeah, the origin was I, the best just, part of that film. Yes, I I just no no no, no, no sorry the best part of that film was Willem Dafoe's face. Yeah, he was okay, scary, yeah. he was scarier with the mask off. Yeah, but then um, I rewatched Spider-Man today just uh, just for this podcast and. Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man is a far more, a far more entertaining, cohesive, and emotionally impactful movie than the, what this thing was. Totally. Yeah. But okay. So, anyway. I'm still confused why the frontman of the pop punk band Goldfinger killed Uncle Ben. <laughs> a- anyone who just look that up, just see what I mean. Um, one thing I would say actually, um, I think Tobey Maguire was a pretty good. Peter Parker in the in the first two that is, and he was a very good Spider-Man. I think Andrew Garfield's a better Peter Parker. I don't think he's a better Spider-Man. Um, yeah, he he, he does. He's Tobey <laughs> This is going to sound really bitchy. Tobey Maguire's got a really really annoying voice. Yes. Um, it's kind of like really whiny and and which is perfect for Spider-Man because he's meant I to be really annoying. I didn't mind that, but yeah, I whereas, can see whereas, that. Whereas um. Well, uh... Andrew Garfield, when he's when he's Spider-Man and taunting people, it doesn't really have the same power to it. It's just sort of like it felt like kick-ass. It, it, yeah, it's it's yeah. like a it's like a it's like a kid wearing a mask rather than a a big bombastic figure. Yeah, but also he looked very feminine. It was like a, almost a case of stupid, sexy Spider-Man, like you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's it's, it's, skin it's also about the fact that you could actually believe Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man because he's actually built up a, mu- a muscle enough to actually physically sell the role, while Andrew Garfield is a bit skinnier and a bit more lanky than. He's a be- better better Peter Parker, but not as good as Spider-Man. Mm. Yeah, but anyway, getting back to the loose plot threads, I'm using. Well, uh, hold on. Uh, it's probably worth mentioning, like, part of, seeing as we mentioned how annoying uh, Tobey Maguire's voice, that's, like, kind of the big failure of Spider-Man 3, is they had him and Topher Grace talking to each other in a film when they both have that horrible voice <laughs> that you just can't listen to <laughs> for that long. Like, it, it's watching two people who could be very nice in real life, let's be fair. Like, if I met Topher Grace and Tobey Maguire in a bar... I would not buy them a drink, but I would say hello, you know? Um, but when they talk, I just want to throttle them to death. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, I disagree with you, but okay. Well, you're wrong. Now tell us about the <laughs> okay, other okay. things we're going to talk but about. Yeah, but it's kind of like, um, 
I think this article um, was the untold story cut from Amazing Spider-Man from the Badass Digest. It, it puts it very correctly. And this ties into the second one. Is basically, the lizard was not set up very well at all. And namely due to the point that it's kind of like it seemed like the lizard had nothing to do. He was just obsessed with trying to get his arm back. And it's like, okay, first of all, the original comic character had a wife and a kid. Yep. His obsession was to try and get a better, uh, to get the arm back so he can be normal and actually have a normal family and stuff like that. But then, like, but then when he turns into the lizard, his whole entire mission objective, shall we say, changes completely. That it becomes like, oh, I want, uh, can I spoil, should I spoil this? Yeah, sure, But basically, he wants to create everyone into lizards because they're better than humans. That's simply it. Like, that's something that's been done before in the comics to pretty good effect, but, like, it's it's stupid. Yeah, but the problem is, is that, one, there's only one sequence where he's, like, fighting his own mind and stuff like that. First of all, the first Spider-Man did that better. The second Spider-Man did that better. And this one... Is they have the lizard who is the Jekyll and Hyde of the Spider-Man universe, and they don't really Jekyll and Hyde it. No, the only mm. one scene, and it's not very done well, and you can't hear anything barely. If I had a table to flip, I would. And um, to be honest, um, this, the char- this character was done so much better in Spider-Man Two. Um, yeah, like heck, even in Free, where they make the mistake of saying he's a physicist, like. The dude is good. Yeah. No, no, I, I mean... Uh, oh, you're, you're on about Dr. Octopus? I'm on about Dr. The guy it, who played uh, Kurt okay. Connors. Here's the setup, though. It's a scientist who's being harassed to try and um, come up with a new breakthrough. So he tries it, but it's all dangerous and it all goes wrong and people get hurt and suddenly he gets taken over by this other force and he goes on rampages and uh, even when he's, you know, not fighting people, he's still sort of under control. Then he gets beaten up by Spider-Man, then he turns good. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And there's one point where he decides to utilize the formula on a squad team. First of all, he comes in with the signature lab uh, lab uh, coat. He's got for an no reason. He's got a never-ending supply of lab coats. He climbs out of a sewer wearing a lab coat and then put, then tears it off himself. And that it's just kind of like it's and and that and 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 the whole entire thing it just feels like they just cut out a middle part of the story just like there there and then just like in between wearing lab coats because we can understand why he's wearing lab coat because he's like testing out the things and stuff like that but then every other time it's like it doesn't make sense that he decides to have a lab coat and then take it off and then he turns a squad of a SWAT team into lizards. And there's no fighting of those lizard characters. There's no point to those lizard characters. He just turns them to lizards for no reason. That's it. But don't worry, they get turned back by Deus Ex Machina. Yay! Okay, now let's get back. Um, get back to my magical list. Uh, as much as like they got better actors now with uh, like Martin Sheen and uh, Sally Field and Campbell Scott and all that type of stuff. It seems like almost every character is a plot device character who's not developed round human, but more kind of like, oh, we're just ticking boxes, everyone, ticking boxes. We got the, we got the, we got the father who's disrespectful. We got the fact that uh, we got Uncle Ben. He's protective, but uh, but he's 
the type of um but he's like directional then you got Aunt May who's like the anchor and then it's just kind of like stop Joseph Campbelling me damn you give me characters give me actual human beings and because this ties into the fact that Spider-Man in this movie has no actual plot um actual through line hmm Hmm. Parker, right, is in this film, right, using my limited knowledge of Spider-Man from, like, memes, um, Daredevil's Shadowland saga and and the Coming Home arc in The Amazing Spider-Man, is that this Spider-Man is dark and moody and um, uh, the whole entire time, basically Twilight Spider-Man. People said, oh, look, he's... No, no. There is, however, there is, however, a Daily Bugle. What? One Wait. Just the paper, not what? the offices. Oh, the pa- okay. The paper appears as headlines. But he's still a photographer. Oh, yeah. He still tries to take pictures of the lizard to sell to the Daily Bugle. Ah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Something that's just occurred to me is there's so many sequences in this movie which are essentially five-minute versions of what Raimi did in one minute. Um... Which just makes oh, yeah. it more, much more convoluted. One example, um, you know how in Spider-Man, when uh, uh, Spidey is hanging off the the uh, bridge, holding onto the uh, cable car and Mary Jane, and you know he's in a really bad situation, and the Goblin keeps trying to kill him, and then the, the people are throwing like crap at the Goblin, going like, "You're messing with Spider-Man, you're messing with New York," and all that stuff, and it's like a yeah. really short, sort of goofy, half a minute long bit about sort of New York. They replaced yeah, that with a five-minute montage in this movie. About yeah. cranes. About cranes, everyone. Starring <laughs> everyone's favourite B-list actor, C. Thomas Howell. <laughs> it's like, there's literally a montage of um, a New York workman getting into cranes and moving cranes. No, no it's... Um, when I mean C. Thomas Howell, this is a guy who, um, while might have starred in The Outsiders and The Hitcher, has gone into the world of... Um, Asylum movies. This is like his best role since since forever, and he's also directed The Land That Time Forgot, The Day That Earth Stopped. <laughs> he also starred in the H.C. Uh, Wells' War of the Worlds. He's um, he's pretty much he's, he's now a, a state asylum worker, is he? <laughs> yes, and somehow he got a role in the Amazing Spider-Man. I feel really sorry for to see Thomas Howell, but anyway. But now he's directing movies for Asylum, so uh, we'll give him that. But yeah, is I said he's Twilight Spider-Man. It's just basically, it's like, people say, oh, he's more fun now. No, he's not. He's a moody guy who doesn't change his character un- um, until about the third act. Literally until the third act. It's kind of like he's acting, he's acting all like, kind of like, oh, my parents are dead and stuff like that. It's like, you're not Batman. Okay. <laughs> You're not freaking Batman. That's the thing. Spider-Man's parents, Spider-Man's parents had never been relevant, even when they temporarily got turned into S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, and yes, that happened. It was like a weird retron, retcon 70s thing. Um, they're, they're completely irrelevant, um, because his parents are Aunt May and Uncle Ben. And he even, like, um, in this movie, like, refers to Uncle Ben as, as his dad, and it's like a really sort of cute moment. And you think, but then oh, it's just, that's nice. Why do we need his parents at all? Why can't we no, just have this? Yeah, no, but it's like he decide. Um, they decide to do that, and all of a sudden, like next scene, he turns. He's like, like pretty much like flips three six, um, like one one hundred and oh, one hundred and eighty degrees. 
just for no reason. It's like, oh, why are you so judgmental about me? You're not my dad. Blah, blah, blah. And it's just kind of like, ugh. It's kind of like, okay, I can handle one scene of that, but this happens like three times before Uncle Ben's death. Uh, but anyway, going even more so, there's uh, the sequence where um, Spider-Man learns how to be um, Spider-Man, shall we say, with the, um, with the skateboard montages, soundtracked by Coldplay. I think I'm the only person who's really angry about this, but it doesn't no, work. No, no. I, I've got to point Coldplay. out now that Coldplay are the worst band in the world, despite no, no, what no. the sales figures say. They're not the worst band in the world. They're the most mediocre band in the world. Oh, yeah, sorry, that's the thing. But they absolutely do not rate, would be the best thing to say. They, no, no, they it's, are... It's just the problem is it's so... It's it's so kind of like out of place. Music... Yeah, like, I, Actually, it's just added in for no reason and really badly edited to this freaking song that makes no sense. You know what the most the most valuable piece of soundtrack the Spider-Man movies has ever had is? It's when what? Sum 41 re-released Rock, It's What We're All About, because it tapped into that crucial age market for Spider-Man. <laughs> it was a pop-punk song about how rock is really cool, and even though we're 20-year-olds, like late 20s as well, singing like we're teenagers... You know you like it. And we did. And we watched Spider-Man. And it was good. I mean, what have we had since then? Fucking Vindicated by Dashboard Confessional. Nice okay. song. You know shit. Useless. And okay, cold I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with that one, okay? Uh, and Okay, you're getting Snow Patrol and Spider-Man 3. But... Oh. But... <laughs> but, oh, man, don't. but the... But the th- here, right? It's just like... There's one point in the film they play the shins... For no reason, just like, oh, we're just going to add the shins in the background, right, while people are talking. Just for no reason. For no thematic point whatsoever. It's just like the director thought, let's put shins in there, right? Oh, man, I, I just completely forgot this point now, but, the, um, but you know when we keep on talking about the missing arc about his parents? Um, yeah. People have been comparing this to the uh, Hulk, Namely, that Spider-Man ah. might have died and might have been special because he didn't die because he got bitten by the thing because he's actually got special genes and this is like massive um, ripoff like, of the Hulk. Yeah. <clears throat> massive ripoff of the Hulk. So no, dad is an absorbing man. I will laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, when, when you're ripping off bad superhero movies, that's just not a good yeah. sign. Yeah, and it's just kind of like. Uh, this film is so inconsistent like Peter Parker right um, back to my list is that he has the ability to know science right and know science very well but then at some points he doesn't know science for convenience sake or if something looks cool it happens things happen because science okay just to explain um, he gets a spider bite he's wondering oh wait what are the Simpsons spider bite he decides to google spider bites well, bing, spider bites. And this is kind of like... Q montage of gross spider bites. spider bites. For no reason. For absolutely no reason. I thought I thought if he put two and two bloody fucking together, he would figure it out, right? Because, look, if you have your father's secret documents, right, about genetics and stuff like that, you would put two and two together if the same symbol appears in the, in, in, in the laboratory that you walk into. And why are they breeding spiders anyway? They never explain. They're just like, oh, they're making really nice funnel nets or something like that. I don't know! But the first time, you know, they introduced Spider-Man to the world, back in Amazing Fantasy 15, it was just a spider got in the fucking way. 
that's how it got all the magic powers that it gave to Spider-Man. Like, Not because what's so unbelievable mystery. about that? It's like, in this one, it's like, oh, I've got to figure out the mystery of my parents. I get Spider-Bite, and then you go and bing it. It's kind of like, why don't you look at the freaking documents? <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> also, God. also those spiders, that's like a room full of um, high-tech machinery and, like, hundreds and hundreds of spider's webs and, like, boxes of webs fluid that he later uses to make his web shooters. And I don't understand and how he gets access to that. Yeah, yeah there's that. There's also, um, no one, <laughs> no one put two and two together with, like, well, we've got this one lab where we make this web fluid that this guy's definitely using, which has these, like, weird spiders, which might, you know, maybe we should just, you know, put this all in a box and ship it to somewhere obscure and never even talk about this again. And something else that was really annoying, annoying was um, I, at one point I turned to Milan and said, Minority Report has a lot to answer for because this is a big Minority Report computer. In fact, it has several, um, you know, big sort of screens without oh screens word, where you're, like... you're moving stuff with your hands and, you know, there's, oh, a, there's a key code on the door, but it's not a key code. It's like a piece of glass and you have to um, no, it's move your like fingers a... around in a certain it's pattern. It's kind of like a glorified Android, um, Android <laughs> lock on everything. <laughs> But and then you've got, and then you've got like this, like, like you got this random like reference to the Tree of Life, and it's like, come on, you're not freaking Avengers, stop it! It's pretty much a, sci- a pretty much a sci-fi movie though, with some of the technology that you see in this movie, which didn't have to be there. Some of some of the MacGuffins and stuff, you can see. Well, okay, maybe you needed to have something like that to add tension, I guess. But so much of like the technology shown in this movie doesn't exist, and there's no reason to have it when you could just have a blackboard. Oh yeah, by the oh, yeah. way, there is, there is a blackboard in the feature stills, but guess what? It's not there. They decide, <laughs> like, it was kind of like, um, like one of the, one of the central pits in the trailer is showing Peter Parker writing on a blackboard, showing the formula to this special, like, the special formula that ultimately makes the lizard. In the movie, it's him writing the formula on a piece of paper, and he's saying, like, the liz, um, Co-Connor says, how did you get this? And it's like, I just thought of it. I'm a sign. Ah, that's terrible. It's like fuck off, fuck off. How much this movie is just needless <laughs> shit? Like honestly, I'd say a good twenty-five minutes. Oh, uh, no, I, I, I would say good. I would say like any scene that doesn't involve Emma Stone. Okay. Anyway, who, uh, who has I to have... die in the next movie? Really? Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I have. I feel really sad about that now. Because how that... this movie can be improved. And you guys can tell me how right I am with these. Number one, and this is just uh, one that wouldn't really work, but it'd be entertaining. If instead of it being Spider-Man, it was Kate Beaton's brown recluse Spider-Man. <laughs> the Spider-Man that, like, I'd like to see, I'd like to see um, her Spider-Man and her Wonder Woman teaming up. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> and the second way of improving it, and this is actually serious, so I'll see what you guys think of this, is if it were like... The Shield. Uh, the old Michael Chickless TV show. It's not that old. Because um, it, it, okay, it, it's kind of old now. I'm pretty sure it's no, old. No, okay, yeah, it's been it's been over for a few years. Okay, because you see the thing they did there, and what the creator of it insisted upon is the first episode, rather than being an origin or introducing everything, should basically be like the third or seventh episode, and. 
that paid off really well because the idea was that it stood on its own merits and you had to you picked it all up because it was fairly open and simple let's be fair it's only a fucking cop show um and you know it, it made for good tv quite the same merit when rebooting spider-man would it have been better if they took that approach of just going oh let's make it like we're making a fucking a, a fifth film or something you know, the world's established, we can introduce a new villain, but it's Spider-Man, he's doing his thing, he's in school, but he's Spider-Man. Like, that would have made for a film that wouldn't have had the line being dropped of just, oh, who killed Uncle Ben? Who cares? Oh, I've got my origin. It's stupid. Here we go. It would have just been, oh, Spider-Man. Uh, got bit, Uncle died, uh, fights crime. crime. <laughs> um, I'm going to extend this to an actual saying, why don't they just adapt individual, like, say, individual graphic novels, but maybe add a little bit more to it? Like, say, for example, uh, Spider-Man Blue? No! Well, no. Well, maybe not, maybe not, maybe no. not the actual comic book, but I'm saying this j- central idea. Don't, don't, don't say that. <laughs> Look, the worst just bear in mind, I haven't read it, so. Blue is when really bad. a comic book movie, or rather, when making a superhero movie, is to directly adapt the comics. Watchmen was average. The best... Okay, the ones that are considered the best superhero movies of all time are Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. I mean, I don't agree with this, but the world agrees with this, yes? Yeah. They are nothing like the comics. That is their strongest thing in the TikTok. Well, they're, they're kind of an amalgam of some of the comics while ignoring a lot of the other comics. It, yeah. it takes what it needs, but it doesn't try to be the comics. It just goes, oh, there are these things that are no, useful. It, it, take it, this, take it, this, take this, put it together. But uh, what I'm trying to get at here is not the actual individual comic, but it's more of the focus. The focus of the film is completely very, very, very messy. Like, mm-hmm. what, yeah. what, I mean, like, I've been listening to interviews with the director and stuff, and it's all about the idea of missing, li- um, about missing. Like, co- um, co- um, everyone has secrets. Everyone in the narrative has secrets. Oh, come on. Um, everyone has kind of like missing parts of them. Kind of like, okay, Kirk Connors might have like a missing arm, but then Peter's missing his own par- um, parents. Ooh, and like, deep. And then it's just kind of like, <gasps> shut up. Just no, no. shut up. <laughs> I, 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 I hope you're not talking to me because I wasn't mocking you. I was mocking the filmmakers. <laughs> no, no, I, I was saying shut up to them. Yeah, good. Okay. Also to you, you're terrible. Shut up, mate. <laughs> yeah, but it's just kind of like I'm not meaning Spider-Man Blue, okay? But uh, I'm just going to reiterate this yet again, okay? Um, a, a singular story focused on the romance or tragedy of Gwen Stacy. Yeah, because essentially they've lost focus on the idea of the character. It's more about the, they decided, mm. you know what? We're going to try and make spectacle. I think Gwen Stacy has to die in the next movie. Well, um, I think, and, I think and the, the 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 after. I mean. One other thing, Max. Um, all through this movie, references are made to Norman Osborn, who is never seen. Um, it's just like, oh, you've got to get this because Norman Osborn's ill, and He's we have dying. to we have to get the cure to him. So you need to grow your arm back because I guess that's the same thing we're trying to cure in him. Now, uh, I think that's probably because if in Ultimate Comics Spider-Man, in like the original Mark Bagley, Brian Bendis first issues or whatever. The uh, story begins, Norman Osborn is responsible for the creation of Spider-Man. And the Raimi film, I believe, has that component to it as well, doesn't it, with the spiders? Was that Oscar or was that somewhere else? No, it was somewhere else. It was Columbia oh, University. It was just, yeah, University. Yeah, so uh, in that comic, the idea it was Norman the case Osborn here, was responsible for that. 
and they want it to be the case there as well because I guess the Ultimate Comics despite no longer selling well now they sell well but before they killed Peter Parker and replaced him with a black guy um, they weren't selling that well and with good reason because they were stagnating but they kind of when they started they were the big business they were the thing that got kids into comics again so I can understand why the movie would want to be like that except that it seems to have forgotten all the good things mm. like everything <laughs> But, I mean, we, we do see, that's not true, we do see uh, Norman Osborn in the after credit sequence. Can we talk about that a little bit, Milan? Who is he played by? Uh, yes, I just want to mention one thing before we go into that, and this is a very... Uh, uh, Christian very... Stewart, to answer your question. Really? <laughs> that's amazing. Well, that's, that's a great... Uh, yeah, okay, um... Well, that just threw me off track. Uh, I, I don't know who it was. I mean, before before we find out, I, it seemed to me like someone doing an impression of Willem Dafoe. Yes. <laughs> it was kind of like they were trying to make an accent and they were trying to make it so mysterious that it's kind of like, well, you can't tell what the actor is because we haven't hired him yet. Because that's what they're simply implying. It's just kind of like, yeah, we're going to make him mysterious because we just don't have money to do that yet. Yeah. I'm actually going to MTV right now to look up the post credits. Not to watch, but just to find out stuff about it. But yeah, um, the bit I was just wanted to mention is the score. Oh, probably the score. one of the probably one of the worst things I've ever heard ever. It's it's equal parts um, complete apathy and actual badness. And um, as I was uh, saying to you guys earlier. Um, all through the movie, I was trying to think of what a, there was a specific piano cue, which will play now. Um, and that reminded me a hell of a lot of the piano cue from the Terminator love theme, which will play now. <laughs> They're not identical, but um, <laughs> there's, there seem to be a similarity there, which oh, man. couldn't... It's a new theme just sucks. It sounded like yeah. someone decided to make it on a keyboard. And the only bits that were almost good were very derivative of Danny Elfman's score. Yeah, um, there was this one sequence where, um, okay, well, Peter Parker humiliates uh, Flash Thompson in uh, in one of the most... But uh, literally one of the worst sequences I've ever seen, where he, uh, where Peter Parker humiliates him by pretty much beating him a basketball, while not double dribbling, which probably ah. which ends up with him failing at basketball. But anyway, um, but it's simply the scores from a '90s comedy. There's no, there's no two ways about it. James Horner has pretty much done a, a pretty much like. I'm going to say this right now. It's going to be... In, it's probably the worst score of the year. And I don't think anything else is going to beat it. Ever. This year. Okay, uh, I'm going to say on. it right now. Just to test the 90s of this. In the basketball match, uh, does Peter, like, dunk a basket and then glass smashes? Yes! Yes. <laughs> oh my god, fuck <laughs> He dunks a basket and his hand gets stuck to the ring of the hoop. <laughs> 
and <laughs> he falls down and the hoop and the glass both come away and he doesn't make the dunk. Why is this movie so bad? <laughs> but there's things about it that are good. That's the horrible thing. <laughs> You're telling Tim, is this movie Snow White and the Huntsman? This movie no. is be- better than Snow White and the Huntsman. Uh, Ma- uh, for the uh, for the maxes of the audience, uh, Snow White and Huntsman was far funnier and far more ca- uh, camp than this. This is just like oh, there's some good. There's probably there's probably about like say ten minutes worth of go- of goodness in this film, with the rest of the film being absolutely horrible. Man, when a action movie starring Snow White is camping in Spider-Man. I just don't feel like the world is right. Even though now I say it out loud, it sounds right. But yeah, I think we. Um, I think I might have exhausted myself out of um, of what I believe um, of all the things I hate about Spider-Man. I'll just summarize with, with this. It isn't to say the film doesn't have good points. Um, Garfield, um, Garfield's and Emma Stone's chemistry, for example, Stanley's cameo, and some good uh, cinematography, but it's few and far between. It's it's um, the film is soulless. The emotional stakes in any of the climatic sequences has none. There's no emotional stakes in this film whatsoever. We don't care about any of the characters when these scenes happen. One of the one character dies in one of the uh, climatic sequences, and it's more like an afterthought than anything else. And if it focused on a great love story, it would have been fantastic. But it has to. But it's a lackluster by the numbers superhero film that's needlessly convoluted. And ignore simple character to just hit uh, plot beats. I this was not a very good movie. I wish this was a movie I wanted to watch. That's all I can say on it. On that down note, I do believe we've come to the end of the episode. Okay, if you want to find out more about the show, you can find us over at imustreadthis.com, where there will be full show notes. And you can find us on iTunes by searching for You Must Hear This Podcast. Other than that, you can contact us by emailing Milan at Milan at imustreadthis.com or, I guess, by other means such as Twitter and Tumblrs and Facebooks and the like, of which you will find the links in the show notes. Our current schedule uh, is hopefully to go and be at least bi-weekly because that means we can pretend we're consistent. And uh, I think with that, that's everything said. You guys got anything you want to add? Just one or two things. Um, one is I saw the first episode of the newsroom, and it was really good. <clears throat> and I also man, saw... the internet agrees disagrees with you so really? hard, man. They I, I, I liked vicious. it. I thought it was quite good. Um, and also, I saw Men in Black three, and um, everything Milan said, at least in his, his review. I've not re-listened to the podcast which we talked about Men in Black 3 since I saw it um, but I reread the review and um, he he knows he gets the nail right on the head there and you disagree with me for being a weepy little bitch about it uh, yeah it, it, there was no emotional thing there at all it was just exploitative I'm easily exploited well uh, Newsroom I'll try to watch that over the next week um, and we can actually talk about that on the next episode okay Indeed. Where hopefully I will actually have got around to seeing Brave and we can talk about that as well. Yeah. Three weeks after I originally intended to watch it. <laughs> but still before Milan sees it, right? Uh, by a mile, yes. Sweet. <laughs> I am a huge jerk. Damn. Um, that was me falling down. Yo, yo. Real talk. Down low. I. Uh,
needed to do this song. Yeah, I'm a nerd. It's a big secret, but I'm a nerd. And I love these books. If you watch it on HBO and think you know what's going on, I appreciate that. The people who waited five years for dance, this one's for you. Check it. Yeah. On the real, your boy is a hip-hop player But for this joint here, I play the role of King Slayer See toe-to-toe, blow-for-blow, we can play G But word to Jamie, there are no other men like me This industry is in a roughed-up state Cats front so tough, you call the bluff, they fake And we all know it too, we just love to pretend Use my tongue as a sword, slice them with a pointy end And friends can turn to enemies in an op link My click together firm like a master's chain link We got skills and yes, we're so ill Our brotherhood was born Underneath the hollow hill, for real Shit so sad, it's almost funny Young niggas, little fingers, steady chasing after money Dummies, I do it for the love like Stark And sit alone with my honor in a dungeon in the dark In this game of thrones, it's eye for eye There is no middle ground, you either win or die You gotta watch the cats who watch your back You can get hit quick, man, and that's a fact Politics and bedfellows, what's real, who's fake With surprise in your eyes when your man goes snake It can happen to your fam or you all alone We go big, we go yeah. home, we play this game of thrones Lots of fake shit, nowadays the realm is a snake pit No gravity, you weightless, not a chance to escape it I take shit from no man and never compromise Tread water, hold my head, navigate the endless lies There is hope though, sure as the dragon flies The energy I maximize for small folk are terrorized But never mind, see here, house classic High above the game at the wall in the basket I'm not pretending there will be no happy ending Beats and rhymes blending To produce the red wedding Do you get it? How these tracks can't score me You may have the better claim But me, I have the bigger arm And like winter, we're coming So let's get shit clear I give a what if you broke or a millionaire Underground versus us, you just can't compare We give you joints like this in the range of cast in there Game of Thrones, it's eye for eye There is no middle ground You either win or die You gotta watch the cast Watch your back, you can get hit quick, man, and that's a fact Politics and bedfellows, what's real, who's fake? The surprise in your eyes when your man goes snake It can happen to your fam or you all alone We go big, we go home, we play this game of thrones It's a travesty, watch them turn tracks into tragedies And live life lavishly, successful with the savagery and avidly Punctuate the premise with lead, the air house stands strong The dragon has three heads, instead of spitting lies I use my imp-like mind, and never back down I am the mountain that rhymes, I see the doubt in your eyes And feel the weakness in your person, you count on the lines Till I finish it for certain Hurting Cause you just don't know who to trust On this changing battlefield It's not you and I, it's us Discuss the fact that we just taking you higher This one here is a true song of ice and fire On this microphone, I'm just doing my thing Bullet men while alive, hip-hop's mad king I do it for the love, I do it for the art Hip-hop, dire wolf, peace out, Omega Star In this game of thrones, it's eye for eye There is no middle ground, you either win or die You gotta watch the cats who watch your back you can get hit quick, man, and that's a fact Politics and bedfellows, what's real, who's fake? The surprise in your eyes when your man goes snake It can happen to your fam or you all alone We go big, we go home, we play this game of thrones I'm liking year two Year two's gonna be good <laughs>